The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. And Bruce Nolan. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Bruce, you're playing Hurt this week, aren't you? I am playing Hurt this week, but the show must go on. That's a, a true, a trooper, a true trooper. That's like, a, I wonder if there's a tongue twister with that. It doesn't matter. Anyways, we will not waste any time. We will use what precious little energy Bruce has left as efficiently as possible in true Bruce Almighty fashion. We are going to talk about today the running backs don't matter conversation. This is something that has, it's been around, I think, you know, since well before LaShawn McCoy was traded. That was one of the first times I think that the Buffalo fan base got wrapped up or swept up in the conversation about how you you cannot, you ought not pay, ought, hey, there it was. There it is. If you're, if you're listening at home, take your shot now. There you go. You should not pay premium capital, either in cap dollars or in draft capital on a running back because you can replace the skill and the production of even the most talented backs to a reasonable level with a far less rich investment. That is, I think, you know, p- part of the uh, part of the, the the information or part of the reality that informs this perspective. The first time I remember sort of wondering about whether or not running backs mattered was the post Terrell Davis era of 
the Denver Broncos under Mike Shanahan with the zone blocking scheme where he was just picking up guys off the street and they were just racking up 1000 yard seasons, guy after guy after guy. Now there were some, there were some pretty attractive talents there like Clinton Portis, but there were also guys like Orlandis Gary and Mike Anderson, who previously had been a fullback, you know, as far as what his primary position was. And they were just rolling guys out there. And there was another guy too, who I think was a smaller guy. Do you remember who I'm talking about off the top of your head? I do not remember off the top of my head who you're talking about. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. So these players, you know, were were very productive for Mike Shanahan's offense. And then after that, uh, I think that maybe this perspective started there. And then it has become, you know, now by 2020, a, a full-blown philosophy of roster building that that some fans and perhaps analysts and perhaps some teams in, in one way or another adhere to this idea that running backs don't matter. But, you know, aside from just saying that phrase, there is there's actually some terminology and some, you know, it's perhaps the hashtag running backs don't matter probably isn't as uh, clear or as articulate as it should be. And, and Bruce, you have a piece dropping on Buffalo Rumblings that digs into this, and we're going we're gonna to try to create a, a more comprehensive framework for people to think about this in, right? Yeah, I think right off the top, the, the running backs don't matter title is really, really bad. It is a title that lends itself right off the bat to misinformation, misunderstanding, and that leads to conflict. People push back against running backs don't matter because the title is running backs don't matter. And when you take that hard of a stance on it, when you just say they don't matter at all, well, I mean, don't matter is a very, it's a very harsh stance. Basically, what you're saying is they can be removed from football entirely with no impact on the game. That's what don't matter means. Not matter less, not impact the game less, not it's a passing league, none of that stuff. It's running backs don't matter. And right off the bat, that's that's problematic. And so what my piece was intended to do and what this podcast is intended to do is kind of break down that that philosophy a little bit and really for me to outline my personal beliefs on this, because this really is a an opinion. And that's really important that we understand that is that philosophically, how you view positions on the team is an opinion. There isn't really factual evidence that indicates that coverage is more or less important than pass rush. But yet right now, there are people who are team coverage and there are people who are team pass rush. You're looking at a person, not actually looking at me, but you're listening to a person right now who is team coverage. And so these are opinions. Now, they're informed opinions, and that's important. It's not like there are opinions that are just equally as interesting as any other opinion. This is not Kyrie Irving telling you the world is flat. This is an informed opinion based on a fair amount of probability and a fair amount of data. So it's not a willy-nilly opinion. It's not taken worth a grain of salt, but it is still at its core an opinion. And so what I'm trying to do here is deconstruct that movement, deconstruct that philosophy, and perhaps rearrange the pieces a little bit so that we can better understand what it actually means and maybe maybe find some common ground between running backs don't matter people who have we've established misnamed their philosophy and the people who push back against it. All right. So taking into account the context, right, that, that 
you said, like, okay, maybe it's not that running backs don't matter. It's that it's a passing league or it's that their talent is translatable or it's that there isn't a big learning curve from the college game to the pro game. Get us started with what has gotten us to a point in general where running backs are not as, you know, paying guys like Ezekiel Elliott and Todd Gurley and David Johnson, you know, that paying these guys isn't as smart of a decision as, you know, maybe it was a generation ago to pay a guy, you know, like Thurman Thomas, who, who played, you know, for the Bills and we're all familiar with. What has gotten us to a point where things are different now and this is even a topic of conversation? The first and most obvious thing is it's a passing league. You've heard Brandon Bean talk about the fact that it's a passing league, and we all just kind of understand that. But every snap that you're not passing is a snap that you're running instead, ideally, (laughs) or at least you're trying to. And as the passing game becomes more weighted, the running game takes a backseat by default. The running game actually didn't change much. The rules associated with running games haven't changed much. In the last 40 years, the running game from a rules standpoint is very, very similar. There's not been adjustments to the league from a logistical standpoint that would de-emphasize the running game. The problem is that the adjustments that have been made to the league have emphasized the passing game. And because you have a limited amount of snaps in a game, more of them are likely to be used and should be used throwing the ball then running the ball as yards per attempt has increased in the league over time yards per carry really hasn't. And so if you think about it like this, just in a basic vacuum, Mitch Trubisky was 32nd in the league in yards per attempt in 2019. He was bad, really bad. He threw for 6.1 yards on average. Every time the ball left his hand, Raheem Mostert, led the NFL in yards per carry, 5.6 yards per carry. So think about this way for a second. Just in a vacuum, if Mitchell Trubisky throws the ball every single down, you're going to get more yards than if Raheem Mostert runs the ball every single down. So let's just start with that. I recognize football is not played in a vacuum, but philosophically, that's where kind of this thing starts. Even a bad quarterback throwing the ball is going to, over time, in a vacuum, net you more yards every time he throws than the best running back in the league. Not Raheem Mostert's not the best running back in the league, but the best running back in the league by yards per you know yards per carry would get you from running the ball. So just right off the bat, that's theoretically what starts this whole passing is more important than running thing. Now, in addition to that, there is a correlation between more efficient efficient passing offenses winning and less efficient passing offenses losing. Now, what we talk about a lot of times when people are fighting against this argument, they say, well, he threw for 300 yards and he lost in those games. We're, we're not talking about yardage. We're talking about efficiency. People who do passing well and yardage is an absolutely staggeringly bad method to measure whether or not you passed well that game. You and I have talked about this before on our statistics pod, how raw yardage 
is really, really, really bad at measuring how well something was done in a particular game. But passing efficiency, whether you want to use QBR, whether you want to use DVOA, whether you want to use yards per attempt, whether you want to use adjusted yards per attempt, there is a correlation between passing efficiency and wins, and that correlation is stronger than rushing efficiency and wins. So now you start to build this concept and you go, okay, so in a vacuum, the worst quarterback in the league throwing the ball would still net me more yards than having Raheem Mostert run the ball every play. Okay, well, well, okay, that's that's in a lab though. That's in a perfect environment. Nothing else does matter. You're just running the ball and passing the ball every single down. Everything goes the same way every single time. Okay, great. Well, now you start to use it more practically and you go, there's a correlation between passing offenses and winning. In addition, the most obvious thing you can correlate is elite quarterbacks and winning the Super Bowl. That's a fairly obvious one that we can all we can all kind of see. When you look at the Super Bowl winning quarterbacks over the last 20 years, there are Trent Dilfer's, Brad Johnson's, Nick Foles, Joe Flacco's. But the vast majority of them are Ben Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes. And you go, okay, that's that's something there. Therefore, if the quarterback is mostly responsible for your passing offense, and if passing offenses correlate with winning Super Bowls and winning games, then the running game starts to take a backseat, not due to any other fault of the running game. The running game didn't do anything. It's not like there's something... We're not penalizing the running game. It's just that as quarterbacks have become more and more important, and as the passing game has become more and more important, the running game has taken a backseat in comparison. Okay, so that is how we've gotten to the point where, you know, the running game has become, you know, I would say objectively less influential than the passing game on a pretty reliable basis game in game out. Now the running game has to be present and you know that if you tried only to pass the ball, you may, you know, I don't know that we have data to suggest about how that, you know, what the, what is the optimal mix and all that kind of stuff because coaches aren't going to one extreme or the other, maybe to some analytics fans uh, frustration. There is a rebuttal to the idea, though, that the running backs simply don't matter at all. Do you want to give us a little bit of an outline as to what are some of the things that we have to keep in mind whenever we are thinking about the running back position? Because it does have value. You know, it's not it's not to say that we we, we just would rather not have Devin Singletary at all and we would just want Josh Allen to throw every play. That's not where we are. So there's got to be a portion of this where we're just you know, we're advocating for having the right perspective. Yeah, I understand how we got there. Like we kind of outlined how it is we get to that concept. And if you take that concept, the argument I just outlined, and you take it all the way to its logical conclusion, it's, well, then why do we run the ball at all? Like what, why do you ever call a run play ever? And so when you take that out to its logical conclusion, it ends with running backs don't matter. That's where you get. And the reason why I framed it that way is because if you say, okay, hold on. So a really bad quarterback throwing the ball every down is still going to net you more yardage than a really good running back running the ball every down. Well, then why do we run the ball at all? 
And that's that's kind of the the statistical end of that argument. And the rebuttal to that is that first off, the goal on every play is not to gain the most amount of yardage. So that sounds weird when I say that. But how much yardage is gained on average in a vacuum on a particular type of play isn't always the goal and it doesn't necessarily matter when the sample size is one. So what we're talking about is over the long period of time, right? Yards per attempt, yards per carry. And we're talking about over the grand scheme of things. You gain more yards if you threw the ball 50 times versus if you run the ball 50 times. If you throw the ball 50 times and you gain 6.1 yards per attempt. And if you run the ball 50 times and you gain 5.6 yards of carry, you're going to gain more yards if you throw the ball every time. Okay, great. Makes sense. However, that's over a long sample size. Sometimes the sample size is one. It's just about achieving success on that play. It's really important. On third and one in your own territory or a fourth and one play, maybe right outside field goal range, it doesn't matter what the average yards per attempt of a particular play is. It matters what the probability is that the play you're calling will get the offense the first down. So if you say, okay, well, you know, I, I'm I'm going to average 6.1 yards per pass attempt here, and I'm going to average 5.6 yards per run attempt. But if it's third and one, if I call this one play and it's a run play and it's got an 80% chance of getting the first down, and I call this pass play and it's got a 60% chance of getting the first down, it doesn't matter how many yards it gains. All that matters is getting the first down. Success is a variable in football. It's really important. It's a little bit like when you talk about baseball, right? I, I know what last week I had a hockey reference. This week I got a baseball reference. Like what is going on with Bruce? But sometimes the goal is get on base. Sometimes the goal is sacrifice fly. The definition of success changes because the end game is score more runs and the end game in football is score more points. But the method of scoring more points isn't always gain the most yards in a vacuum on every play. That's not how this works. It's sometimes just I want to move the chains here because if I get 5.6 yards per carry and 6.1 yards per pass, but that pass is incomplete, it doesn't matter. In the grand scheme, it'll matter, but it doesn't matter on that one play. In that given play, whatever that play is, you just want that play to be successful. Sometimes in a script, you and I have talked about this, in a script, the first 15 plays to open the game, you might be running a play specifically to see what the defense is doing when you show them this formation so you can capitalize on it later. Well, that's a completely different de definition of success. I mean, yeah, you want to gain yards on that play, sure. But there's so many other things that go into whether or not a play was successful than maximizing the yardage in a vacuum over a long period of time. It is an incredibly simplistic argument taken all the way to its final conclusion. And that's what frustrates people who want to have a more nuanced conversation about this, is that it's unbelievably simplistic and it doesn't take into calculation the fact that success isn't just gaining all the yards. I think that is that is part of the frustration that I have always kind of had with people who talk about running backs not mattering and 
don't worry about it. Never pay a guy. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that are true about football that impact the decisions that you make. And they're not always just how many I mean, they're not always just even what happens on the field. I mean, sometimes it's about it's about the locker room culture, which I'll, I mean, analytics people are really not going to like that influencing the decisions that you make. But you know, there's all sorts of things that go into football because it is not an individual performance game. It is not 11 individuals. You just want them to perform to their absolute maximum and they're robots, right? I mean, there are people, there are, there are choices, there's influences, there's all sorts of things that are happening to these players uh, in their minds and with their bodies on a play in play out basis. And you're trying to, you know, synchronize and create some synergy amongst them. And there's a team, there's a part of this that's the team dynamics, right? And so like, to me, talking about how not only are you not necessarily trying to have an 80 yard touchdown pass on every play, right? You're not, I mean, not every play is truly designed to score points, even though that is ultimately the goal of the game. Part of it is to set yourself up so that you can score points. You have to position yourself and, you know, this all makes sense to me. I guess I don't have a whole lot of um, additional comments about the running back position specifically in the running game and how it contributes, but it, I, I'm always going to be an advocate for a person or for a perspective that, you know, emphasizes how football is not a game that is simply played on paper. And it is simply not about having the highest possible skill set for the lowest possible investment or the highest possible skill set at a particular position. There, there are, there are points of that argument that I agree with, like that, that, that I am, I am cohesive with, but there is, it is such a simplistic, you know, almost binary, you know, I'm stealing your vocabulary now that it, it does not encapsulate the complexity of what I believe is true about football. And what is true about professional football and what is true about having, you know, 55, however, however big the roster is now, 53, 55 grown men, you know, contributing and participating and, and uh, trying to achieve a shared goal. You know, that to me is one of the reasons why I immediately have a soft spot for this, you know, uh, to add some nuance to this perspective is because if you get to a point where everything is simply yes or no, or this or that, this is right, this is wrong, and there is no wiggle room, then I I immediately start being hesitant and anxious because I don't think you're appreciating the complexity of what is happening on an NFL field and in an NFL locker room and inside of an NFL organization. And this is where complexity comes into the second piece of my rebuttal. And the second piece of my rebuttal is that I mentioned that probabilities matter less in small sample sizes. A good running game is a hedge against quarterback injuries. And more talented players touching the ball is better than less talented players touching the ball. Do we want to talk about simplicity? 
Simplicity? Yeah, we'll talk about simplicity. How about that one? If I just established in the previous point that there are times when running the ball will achieve success on a play at a higher percentage than passing the ball, which is what I just established, right? Because sometimes if it's fourth and one, there are there's arguments to be made that a spread quarterback sneak, which is part of the running game, will achieve your stated goal, which is get the first down more often than throwing the ball. So if that's the case, running the ball has a place. Okay, well, great. So now if you've established you have to run the ball sometimes in order to get the maximum amount of probability of success on a given play, having more talented players touching the ball is better than having less talented players touching the ball. That's pretty self-explanatory. I don't really don't think I need to go into that anymore. But when it comes to a hedge against quarterback injury, I think it's something that people don't talk about. And I want to use this analogy to describe it. Because expending resources to hedge against quarterback injury is diversification of resources, it is almost analogous with a stock market. If you have one stock, and on average, that stock performs better than any other stock in the market, would any financial advisor worth their salt recommend that you put all of your eggs in that basket? Of course not. That would be insane. Well, but on average, it performs better than any other stock. Well, I recognize that, but that's on average. That's just an average. That's over a long period of time. Diversification of resources is part of performance because performance over time isn't only about maximizing gain. It's also about minimizing loss. The run game has a place in that. There are teams who can have a quarterback go down and win a couple games because they have a good offensive line and a strong running game. And those extra games help them get a better seed in the playoffs, which can help them win the Super Bowl. This kind of stuff matters, and it matters a lot more the less games you have. The best team in the NBA typically wins the NBA championship. Why? Because the game is built around that. The seeding and the series structure of the NBA, they limit fluke championships much more than the NFL's one-game survive-in-advance playoff. That's just the way it is. Any given Sunday is part of what makes the NFL so exciting to watch. Well, that also means probabilities matter a lot less in smaller sample sizes because all that matters is winning that game. If you have 170 games in the NFL, that matters a lot differently. That's just the way it is. But if you have 16, you got to do what you have to do to win that game. That one game, you have to do what you got to do. And that means that this whole, well, in a vacuum matters a lot less because the smaller your sample size, the farther away from vacuum status you are. And I think this is really important because I just listed three reasons in addition to what I just talked about, why running the ball has value. I'm not saying it has as much value as passing the ball. I don't think anyone's trying to make that argument. We're trying to make the argument that this incredibly short-sighted and binary and fatalistic argument that throwing the ball every single down would be better than running the ball at all and that running backs don't matter at all is kind of naive. I really like the analogy. I was really proud of myself when I came up with the analogy of the stock. And I think that's true. Yes, absolutely. Having an elite quarterback and getting elite quarterback play and elite passing game play correlates with winning a Super Bowl. It absolutely does. Are you going to put 
all of your eggs in the quarterback basket. That's one player who is one play away from destroying your entire season. You're not even going to bother with a running game. You're not going to bother practicing it. You're not going to bother having a running back who's talented. I want talented players. And so because of that, the running game matters. And really, that's what this is about. The first step in establishing whether or not running backs matter is, does the running game matter in general? That's the first step. Because if running if the running game doesn't matter at all, then we can just take care of the second step. Running backs obviously don't matter. But the running game has a place. We've already established that there are multiple places the running back finds a role and the running game finds a role. And this is one of those times. Let's take a quick break. We will come back. Bruce will spike the ball on this philosophic undertaking of rephrasing and and creating some structure around the running backs don't matter commentary and the running backs don't matter analytics crowd. And then we will be right back with you. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Okay, so let's let's pick up, you know, I think we've we've said where we got to. We've talked about how it, it it's not as simple as what you know, the running backs don't matter crowd maybe sometimes would suggest, right? There, there has to be some uh, understanding and appreciation of what they do offer. Okay. Now, one of the things that we have been interacting with recently is we are in mock draft season, especially amidst the coronavirus, you know, uh, quarantine and people not being able to go about their regular lives. The mock draft machine over at the draftnetwork.com. I mean, there is smoke coming out of that thing. It is working so hard. So people are running lots and lots of mock drafts. And now that the bills only have a, the first pick that they have as it stands today is pick number 54 in the second round. You're coming to a point, you know, it's a little, this is from a total novice perspective, but it seems easier to tell yourself, I really have to take, whatever elite talent might have fallen to 54 because I don't have the opportunity to pick an elite talent that I can feel like is really confidently going to be there at 22, which was our the pick we did have before we traded it along with other assets for Stefan Diggs. At 54, you know, part of this is going to kind of be like uh, – 
the, the guys that have fallen, the guys that you, you thought were maybe elite talents or that you thought really highly of, but for one reason or another, they are just slipping down the board. And now at 54, it's an incredible value. And a person or two guys, at least, that have been conversation topics about maybe being there at 54 and you got to think kind of hard about it is J.K. Dobbins, the running back out of Ohio State, and then Jonathan Taylor, the running back out of Wisconsin. Yeah. And this is one of those scenarios where, you know, we weren't really talking about it before because there were so many needs. But needs are different now. And so as the needs change, your receptiveness to taking a running back starts to come to the forefront, which kind of spurred this whole conversation. There are still people in Bill's Mafia who ascribe to the running back doesn't matter theory and the very harsh running back doesn't matter theory. And so because of it, there's still no, 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 no. And people like me who mind you, if you remember correctly, Nick, I was team no running back last year for the draft for very significant reasons. I said, listen, th- this running back does not need to be seasoned for a year and I do not want to waste a year of a running back rookie contract sitting behind LaShawn McCoy and Frank Gore. I said, you know, if we got rid of LaShawn McCoy, then the grade would be a B for Devin Singletary. And guess what? We got rid of LaShawn McCoy and it worked. But it's starting to come to the forefront, this discussion, because of that. And so now that we've kind of talked about why we think the running game matters in general, I kind of want to reestablish this argument And I want to change it from running backs don't matter to you have to be selective with the weight you put on running backs. Running backs have selective value is really the way that this should be outlined. And because of that, I want to outline a couple of my personal preferences that I have toward the way that organizations I feel should value running backs and why I think that way. So we're going to start with that. The first one, never draft a running back in the first round. Ever. Now, I understand this is a very harsh absolute, and we just spent the last 30 minutes of this podcast fighting against harsh absolutes. However, I don't think anyone has a problem saying you shouldn't draft a kicker in the first round. I don't think anyone really has a problem nowadays saying you shouldn't draft a run-stopping defensive tackle, a two-down run-stopping defensive tackle in the first round, or a punter, or a two-down thumper linebacker. Those are positions we shouldn't draft in the first round either. All for very similar reasons, not because those positions don't have any value, because they have lessened value. So it doesn't have enough value for me to warrant drafting a running back in the first round. Because first round, what you're giving up is you're giving up players that can help you more often by drafting a player who helps you Less often, you're drafting a player who helps you in an area of the game. We established the running game is not as important to winning. It's not as correlative to winning overall as passing is. We can accept this, right, Nick? That's that's fine with me. I do want to pick your brain on one thing, though. So never take a running back in the first round. Now, I understand that guys coming out of college mean that you don't know what they are. But let me ask you this. If you are suspicious or you believe that potentially a guy could be, you know, Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, Jim Brown. I mean, some of these guys that are legendary. And now, again, I will even acknowledge maybe Walter Payton isn't the same player in this NFL. Maybe Jim Brown isn't the same player in this NFL. But I mean, if you're talking about some of the greatest of all time, if you have a conviction 
that this running back could be that person. Does that rule still, you know, pretty much apply because you don't know what they are, you can't be sure or whatever? Or is there even maybe a little bit of wiggle room with anybody you can imagine out of NFL history that you would be comfortable spending a first round pick on? I still wouldn't be comfortable. Number one, because you don't know that they're going to be that player. And number two, even if you did, the most successful running backs in modern NFL still don't correlate to winning as much as the passing does. So Adrian Peterson never won a Super Bowl, right? Because he was an unbelievable running back, still is a great running back, but it doesn't correlate as much as another position would. So for example, if you draft an offensive tackle, that person contributes in the run game. That person contributes in the pass game. If you draft a guard, it's the same way. If you draft a wide receiver, they contribute in a method that is more correlative to winning than a running back. If you draft a cornerback, the inverse is also true. If passing offenses matter more, that means passing defenses matter more. Running and stopping the run is coach speak and absolutely does not correlate with winning as much as passing and stopping the pass. That's the way this works. So if you draft a corner, right? If you draft a cornerback with that same pick, that person is going to influence winning and losing more than a running back will. Now, it's the same method of, you know, the greatest two down run stopping defensive tackle of all time. I mean, just think about some of these players. Think about Ted Washington, right? No, I wouldn't spend a first round pick on Ted Washington. He was the one of the best to do it at his position. The difference is his position just doesn't correlate to winning as much as a corner or a three down linebacker or a quarterback or a tackle or a wide receiver. It's the same reason the running back argument about never draft a running back in the first round is the exact same argument as why you don't draft a punter in the first round. It doesn't matter if it's a, it's Ray Guy, the greatest punter of all time, doesn't correlate as much to winning as any of the other positions that I ma- mentioned, which is why it's a hard, fast rule for me. In addition, there's a second reason why I don't want to do it, and that is the fifth-year option has very little value for a running back. One of the main reasons that first-round picks have value is because a fifth-year option is attached to them. It's essentially a mini-franchise tag, and it allows you to keep that player for 20% longer than a player taken outside the first round as long as they're reasonably compensated. The fifth-year option, when used on a position that not only experiences the most precipitous drop-off in production at the time in their career that may happen before the rookie contract is up, but also takes the most hits of any position in football, I mean, that represents a high risk of being paid out to a player who's unable to play or is ineffective because they're hurt. So you're taking a valuable part of the first-round pick, which is the fifth-year option, and you're minimizing the value of a valuable piece. When you use it on a running back, if I don't want to spend big money on a running back, spoiler for my next point, then I also don't want to use a fifth round, fifth year option on him because it's guaranteed for injury. And what positions are more likely to see suffer precipitous drop offs and potentially more risky for injury because they get hit every time they touch the ball running backs. So those are the two main foundational reasons why I would never draft a running back in the first round. That doesn't mean they don't have value. It just means that their value doesn't align with the value of a first round pick, which I think is a lot more reasonable than running backs don't matter. Running backs don't have value that aligns with a first round pick. And we all understand this. 
when it comes to punters, kickers, two down run stopping defensive tackles, two down thumper linebackers, we understand it. We just need to wrap our head around that also applying to running backs. Are there other rules that, you know, are things that you want to get out here that matter? I mean, not taking one in the first rounds. Okay, so how do you feel about J.K. Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor at 54? I mean, is that... I think that would be a very reasonable option, assuming I don't know who else is on the board. But you're hard-pressed to tell me that J.K. Dobbins, as your... I mean, let's be honest. If J.K. Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor come in, they're probably RB1. They're probably not RB2. And if they represent a significant upgrade to TJ Yeldon, which I believe they do. I believe they represent a staggering upgrade to TJ Yeldon. And I'm not a huge TJ Yeldon guy. And so if your upgrade is there versus upgrading EJ Gaines, say you say, okay, my my upgrades here are EJ Gaines to Noah Igbenogany or TJ Yeldon to Jonathan Taylor. That's... I mean, you got to think about that. That's not as obvious as you might think it is. And you might, mind you, I'm a huge corner guy. I want to take a corner at 54. But if Jonathan Taylor's there, if DeAndre Swift is there, if J.K. Dobbins is there, you have to at least think about that because Sean McDermott has openly said, we don't think one guy should get all the carries. So at minimum, this guy get 40% of the carries. And that's 200 plus touches in a year. 200 touches for, by T.J. Yeldon? Versus 200, those exact same 200 touches by Jonathan Taylor. Are you trying to tell me that's not going to have a significant impact on the offense? I think it will. And so I'm I'm open to the idea of running it back at 54. I'm totally open to it. My second rule is never give a running back a notable second contract. Ever. I don't care if it's Todd Gurley. I don't care if it's Ezekiel Elliott. I don't care if it's David Johnson. I don't care if it's LaShawn McCoy. In fact, I'd argue LaShawn McCoy of all the big running back contracts recently, you could make an argument LaShawn McCoy actually did the best job of living up to the contract he signed when he got to Buffalo post-trade and they gave him that, hey, please be happy money. The chances of that happening are very, very low, but it actually worked out fairly well in the Bills' favor, I thought. I thought LaShawn McCoy did a fairly decent job of living up to his contract. He was a main function of this offense for a long time after he got here. But... Running backs are the most dependent position on football field. A great running back who plays with a bad quarterback and a bad offensive line will net out to a less successful running game than a bad running back playing with a good quarterback and a good offensive line. And this dependency creates with it replaceability. So I mentioned on a running back podcast earlier this offseason that specialization breeds predictability. Those two things are directly correlative. This is another one of those situations. Dependency is directly correlative to replaceability. If you are an extremely dependent position, then you are replaceable because everything else around you has to be perfect for you to do your job. And if everything else around you has to be perfect for you to do your job, then that means you are not the most important factor of you doing your job well. And if you are not the most important factor for you doing your job well, you are replaceable. That's how this works. The increase in production from a a mid-round rookie to a second contract running back is likely to not be equivalent to the increase in cost. I would not have paid Ezekiel Elliott. I would have traded him. If he wants to be that, let somebody else do it. Take advantage of inefficiencies in the market. If there's a a, a team out there who's willing to give you a second and a third for Ezekiel Elliott, don't give him $96 million. Trade him. And everyone believes in this concept until it's their guy. 
So right now, we all might be nodding at this podcast. Oh, yeah, Bruce making a good point here. And the second Devin Singletary comes up for contract, we're going to forget everything we just said, and we're going to want to pay him a lot of money. And I'm, I'm going to get yelled at because I'm not going to want to pay him a lot of money. You get four years of an athletic prime for a running back the second they walk in the door. The second they come in the door, this goes back to our running backs don't need to be seasoned discussion we had last year, and we just had it again today. When they walk in the door, they're already in that athletic prime. You get four good years of them. You let them go off somewhere else. That's it. These two rules, when used in combination that I just outlined, can kind of clear up the fog of war that surrounds that whole running backs don't matter debate. Really, running backs absolutely matter. You just need to put up bumpers. That's all you're doing. You're just putting up bumpers to avoid overinvestment in a position that has a lower correlation of, of, of leading to wins. That's all you're doing. You're just putting up bumpers. You're not writing them off. You're not saying never draft a running back ever because that person has to touch the ball. That person is going to touch the ball. If you only spend undrafted free agent money on running backs, then you're going to have less talented people touching the ball because you're going to run the ball three to 400 times a year. That's going to happen. And so if that happens and you have a less talented player touching the ball, you are actually doing your team a disservice. You are less likely to win because you have these touches given to less talented players. We're not here to write off running backs. We are here to put up bumpers the same way that these bumpers exist for Two down run stopping defensive tackles, punters, kickers, two down run stopping linebackers. These positions are devalued. So are running backs. That doesn't mean they don't matter at all. That means you don't spend significant resources on them. So, Bruce, then, you know, in an ideal world, you're okay with a supreme talent, you know, a really high end running back in the second round. Do you have a sweet spot for where you regularly would want to find a running back? And and how does that, you know, is it the third to the seventh? Or, I mean, do you real? I mean, are you okay if we just did sixth and seventh round picks? Do you like them if they're a little bit higher? And then how does that compare with, you know, the, the cheap free agent veteran like a TJ Yeldon? You know, he was not expensive. Uh, now, we did give him a two year deal, which was a little curious. But, you know, Chris Ivory was a guy that we brought in. Frank Gore. I mean, these are guys who. You know, maybe we paid Frank Gore more because of his cachet, but, you know, you can find pretty affordable veteran running backs on one-year deals pretty much every season. What's your preference with how you want to address the position if you were in charge? I love one-year running back deals. I love them. They make me very happy. If they blow up and someone else decides they want to give them a fat long-term contract, then good, good. That helps you get comp picks. If they don't blow up, you have basically nothing invested in them. It's a win for everybody involved. I love one-year running back contracts. In addition, when it comes to draft capital, I'm a third to fifth round guy when it comes to running backs. I am not of the opinion you should stock your running back room with nothing but undrafted free agents. And whether or not you are comfortable taking those players is primarily based on where your team needs fall. Because we've established that there are times when I want to draft a punter, Nick. There are times when I want to draft a kicker. There are times when I think a, a two-down, run-stopping defensive tackle could be drafted. It's a matter of value. And I think running backs have more value than any of the players I just mentioned. I think running backs contribute more to winning than two-down, run-stopping defensive tackles and two-down, run-stopping linebackers. 
And I've established on the conversation that I had with Joe Marino that punters have a fairly, you know, fairly underrated effect on field position, which affects points scored. So those people all have value. It's a matter of how much value. And I'm a third to fifth round guy as a general rule. Now, if a first round talent, if a player I I think could get drafted by a team who does not ascribe to these theories in the first round, if they fall to 54, sure. Sure, I'll take them at 54. All right. Well, uh, we will be back with you guys again tomorrow with a different topic. Uh, we're going to do, we do spend some time on the running back position. We're going to go to another offensive skill set. Tomorrow, we're going to dig into the wide receiver position. And uh, I think it's a, I think it's a conversation that a lot of people are going to find some value in. So I, I'm excited about that one. We will leave you overnight as you uh, sit with this thought, these thoughts that we've left you with about the running back position and about whether or not it does or does not matter. Please hit us up and let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. And until tomorrow, hopefully, whenever we uh, meet again, we will see some wonderful iTunes reviews or Stitcher reviews of people who have commented about the show. But until then, we just want to make sure that you guys have some, some, some feel-good parting thoughts. And so with that, we leave you with this. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha.